This is Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. Fiction and nonfiction, graphic novels, and more. We're here to help you find something great to read. After Stamford, Connecticut is destroyed during a televised fight between the New Warriors and a group of dangerous villains, public sentiment turns against the superheroes. Johnny Storm, the Human Torch, is attacked outside a nightclub and beaten into a coma. Advocates call for reform, and a Superhuman Registration Act is debated, which would require all those possessing paranormal abilities to register with the government, divulge their true identities to the authorities, and submit to training and sanctioning in the manner of federal agents. One week later, the act is passed. Any person with superhuman powers who refuses to register is now a criminal. Some heroes, such as Iron Man, see this as a natural evolution of the role of superhumans in society and a reasonable request. Others view the act as an assault on their civil liberties. After being called upon to hunt down heroes in defiance of the Registration Act, Captain America goes underground and begins to form a resistance movement. The superhuman community is split apart. Former teammates, comrades, and friends now find themselves at odds in this civil war. Iron Man and Captain America have gone from the staunchest of allies to the leaders of opposing armies. Brother has taken up arms against brother, and now blood has been spilled. With those words began most issues of Marvel's Civil War, a huge comic book crossover event that ran from 2006 to 2007 and encompassed over a hundred issues of Marvel Comics. Inspired by the events in the U.S. following 9-11, including America invading both Afghanistan and Iraq, and the partisan attitudes of both the politicians and the citizens of the United States, this crossover changed the status quo in the Marvel Universe. Heroes died, new characters were introduced, and most importantly, comic books flew off the racks and topped sales charts. In 2012, Marvel Comics hoped to recreate that success with Civil War, the first in a new series of prose novels based on Marvel Comics. I'm Arnie, co-host of Books and Nachos and fan of the Marvel Comics characters, and today I'm here to look at the Marvel Comics Civil War prose novel written by Stuart Moore. I was intrigued by the announcement that Marvel Comics was starting a series of prose novels. Despite the fact that Marvel's press release announcing their new prose novels were written as if there had never been prose books about Marvel heroes before, I knew better. Novelized tales of heroes, both original tales and adaptations, have been around for decades. If you go into the archives of Books and Nachos, you can hear my review of Iron Man, Femme Fatales, an original prose novel released a few years back. And if you head to our other podcast, Marvelicious Toys at MarveliciousToys.com, you can hear my reviews of several more prose novels, adaptations of Marvel movies including the first three Spider-Man films, Howard the Duck, the two Iron Man movies, and the two Incredible Hulk feature films. Beyond that, back in the 1990s, I was a big fan of the prose novels written about Marvel Comics characters. From Spider-Man's Sinister Six duology to Peter David's Incredible Hulk, What Savage Beast. And if you stay tuned to Books and Nachos late this summer, I'll have another review looking at the 90s book, Incredible Hulk Abominations. So last year, when Marvel announced a return to prose novels in a big way, I was very interested. That their first novel would be an adaptation of a very popular comic run, however, had me scratching my head. I know Civil War is immensely popular, but to launch a book series, why would Marvel choose to revisit well-covered ground? More 
Why pick a five-year-old storyline that's quite out of touch with today's movie-influenced Marvel Universe? A little research showed I shouldn't have been so shocked. DC Comics has been doing this with some success for many years, combining comic book adaptations with original prose. Now it's time for Marvel to jump into the fray. Four excessively popular comic story arcs would be adapted to prose fiction. First was Civil War, written by Stuart Moore, based on the comics written by Mark Miller, author of other comics such as Kick-Ass and Ultimate X-Men. Second was Astonishing X-Men Gifted, adapted by Peter David from the Joss Whedon comics. Third is New Avengers Breakout by Alyssa Quitney, based on the comics by prolific and beloved comics writer Brian Michael Bendis. The last book is coming out in just a couple of weeks. It's Iron Man Extremis, written by Marie Javins, based on the Warren Ellis story arc. And as this four-book series is drawing to a close next month, I thought it was a good time for Books and Nachos to look back as I review all four of these Marvel Comics prose adaptations. It's also perfect timing for Civil War because Marvel's entered into another deal with Graphic Audio for a series of full-cast audiobooks based on Marvel characters, the first being, you guessed it, an audiobook based on Stuart Moore's Civil War novel, bringing this 2012 Marvel book back into the spotlight. The future graphic audio adaptations are not based on the other prose novels I just listed, but they did start by abridging and adapting Stuart Moore's novel, which itself is an abridgment and adaptation of the Mark Miller comic line. And as I mentioned, Civil War, in every format, is a story full of allegories to the United States post-9-11 and during the War on Terror. The Superhero Registration Act is a not-so-subtle reference to George W. Bush's Patriot Act. The division between the superheroes mirrored the division in the American populace during that time and the starch partisanism that permeated American society. The Negative Zone prison where superhuman criminals were housed was a veiled comment on Guantanamo Bay. It's hard for me to say if this topical social commentary is what invigorated comic book fans or just the fun of seeing Iron Man punch Captain America in the face, but the comic series was hugely successful. Not only were the first five issues of Civil War the five best-selling comics of 2006, Civil War comics were some of the best-selling comics of the decade. Civil War number two was second only to the issue of Amazing Spider-Man with Barack Obama on the cover for 2000 to 2010. Civil War issues one and three weren't far behind. And with such a tremendous success, Marvel Comics Civil War was an obvious choice to launch a line of Marvel prose novels. Those who had read the comics five years before would be able to relive the excitement through Stuart Moore's writing, and fans like myself who had heard about Civil War but never read it could experience it in novel form. And that is my confession. Despite being a Marvel Comics fan, I'd never read a single issue of Civil War. I felt I knew quite a bit about the event, and when CNN and other major news outlets are covering events that occur in the Marvel Comics universe, it's impossible not to be somewhat aware of situations such as the Superhero Registration Act and Captain America's death shortly thereafter. Plus, I played the game Marvel Ultimate Alliance 2, which was loosely based on the Civil War arc, but I'd never read the Civil War base comic or any of the crossovers. So before reading Civil War the novel, I went back. Thanks to trade paperbacks, digital comics, and a few back issues at my local comic store, I read every issue of the Civil War crossover. Over 100 issues of comics. As this novel is an adaptation of these 100-plus comics, I felt knowing the source material was important for me to be able to judge this book. Much like it would be hard to judge the novelization of a film without watching the movie upon which the book is based. And, spoiler warning, 
Some of the major events in that comic series and this book are going to be discussed in this show. That said, if you've read CNN or a single Marvel comic in the past five years, I don't think I'm going to be giving away anything you don't already know. I'll keep my thoughts on the comic arc brief, but I did find it to be a fun arc. I thought several character motivations felt more plot-driven instead of character-driven. Choices seem to have been made for the sake of shock, such as Captain America fighting against the U.S. government, or Spider-Man standing up and taking off his mask, revealing his true identity to the world. But these key events are vital to the story of Civil War. Even so, I felt the characters often acted opposite of the way they'd previously been portrayed. There were attempts to explain things through dialogue, but never made sense to me, and I just never bought it. The pacing of the story was also somewhat uneven, and to guess, I think not all of the crossover issues panned out as expected. There are some revelations that seem to have come out of nowhere. We seem to be expected to know things that we were never told, even in all the crossover issues. In researching, I found out there were production delays that made Civil War stretch out longer than it was intended, and maybe that had an impact. But whatever the reason, even reading every crossover comic, there seemed to be a lot of gaps in that story. Finally, I felt the comic wasn't told evenly from both sides. Because of unclear motivations for many characters, the pro-registration side, led by Iron Man, seems to come off as the bad guys. The anti-registration side, led by Captain America, the good guys. While the authors may argue they tried to tell a balanced story, I think the telltale character here is Spider-Man. Spider-Man is the biggest Marvel Comics hero and often the moral compass of the Marvel Universe. He starts off on the pro-registration side, but ends firmly on the other side, convinced what Iron Man is doing is wrong. As a reader, if you follow Spider-Man's logic and his reasoning for turning, there's no other way to interpret it other than Iron Man's in the wrong and Captain America's in the right. I would have preferred a story with more balance, where either side could be seen as right. If you have a comic story representing, in theory, Republicans versus Democrats, liberals versus conservatives, in a post-9-11 America, you should have someone representing each side's viewpoint. Instead, a liberal viewpoint prevails throughout the comics, which makes the end of the series about as big a downer as you could ever imagine. I get the impression from Back Matter that Marvel wanted the story to be balanced. As a reader, I can say that was not accomplished. But I did enjoy the comic series as a mega crossover with literally hundreds of, oh hey, it's that character, moments, and some really great sub-stories in the tie-in issues. Specifically, Fantastic Four, the Speedball story, in the Frontline Civil War comic, the X-Factor stuff, the Thunderbolts comics, they all grabbed my interest. The Spider-Man issues were also a high point, with one ending on a huge, oh my god, cliffhanger. And for me, the Punisher emerged as the shining star of the series, with his out-of-left-field appearance and role in the arc. But knowing what I do about the fluid nature of comic publishing, the delays in comic releases, and all the cooks in the Civil War kitchen, I really was anxious to read Moore's adaptation of the book and see if time and perspective could take Civil War from a good crossover to a great novel. But of course, it's impossible to cram 100 issues of comics into 350 pages of a novel. Moore had to choose which parts of the story to retell and which to drop. In an interview I did with Mr. Moore, which you can hear in issue 54 of Marvelicious Toys at MarveliciousToys.com, he said he focused specifically on the core issues of Civil War written by Mark Miller, with the inclusion of some material from the Spider-Man crossover issues and the Fantastic Four crossover. Indeed, he stripped the story down to its bare essentials, telling the entire story from a much more narrow point of view than the comics do. 
Gone is the entire subplot of how the mutant community factors into the Civil War. Gone are the reporters, Ben Urich and Sally Floyd, who reported on the war for their respective partisan press outlets. Gone is the subplot about the Atlantean sleeper cells in the USA being called upon for battle. I do miss some of the cuts. I found Speedball's story arc from the Frontline comics especially moving. But I do understand these cuts are necessary to try and tell this huge story in a concise manner. Darlings have to be killed. And the streamlining works to great effect. The book tells the same basic story as the comic book Civil War, but in a concise format. Slimming down the number of core characters while keeping alive the core ideological debate at the center of the story, Moore's adaptation certainly gives readers the Civil War experience minus the tremendous art. But by giving the Civil War story, some of the problems inherent with Civil War persist. I still think Captain America goes rogue too quickly. I think S.H.I.E.L.D. is too quick to give up on negotiation and just start shooting at the national hero. I think longtime friendships are broken too easily and the sides too staunch. In neither the comic nor the novel do people ever really have a reasonable discussion or try to come to terms with the other side. Comic books are paced in such a way to have a big fight every issue, with five to eight issues in every arc. As such, there's not a lot of time for build-up and discussion, and the novel doesn't change that. Additionally, while I do think that Moore tried to get a bit further inside Iron Man's head and balance out the storytelling of the two sides, pro-registration and anti-registration, by following the same core story as the comics, by having Spider-Man switch sides and having things play out like they do, the sympathetic characters are all on the anti-registration side. There is the addition of one character, the parents of one of the children who died in the Stamford incident, who keeps Iron Man on the straight course, convincing him what he's doing is indeed righteous. But even Iron Man himself has copious doubts. And if that's the case, it's really hard to still see this story as balanced. But while those core flaws persist, in many small ways, more improves upon the Civil War story. In the Civil War comics, it seemed to me that so many fights occurred at random. In big battles, who was fighting who seemed almost arbitrary, or, at the very least, dictated more by aesthetics than storytelling. But Moore keeps a close track of his characters and their grudges. The fights in the novel's climax have punch, but also have character payoff. For example, at the start of Civil War, Spider-Man is the protege of Iron Man. Tony Stark had taken Peter Parker under his wing, given him a job, given him a new Iron Spider outfit, and this mentor-mentee relationship puts Spider-Man firmly on Iron Man's pro-registration side at the start of the book. But as Peter starts to question the righteousness of the Registration Act, the two have a falling out in a major way, which was one of the comic's biggest surprises. But after that confrontation in the middle of the Civil War comic arc, the two barely interact at all. I mean, Civil War is about Captain America versus Iron Man, and Spider-Man was one character too many in that equation. But Moore finds ways to bring Spider-Man's arc full circle in the climax and still not rob the Cap Iron Man showdown of import. That is but the biggest example of personal relationships that Moore builds, then pays off in his novel. And being based on a comic book, that payoff usually comes with a punch. And fortunately, Moore is also good at writing exciting action scenes. These battles are huge, but Moore juggles all the characters well. Heroes come in and out of the fights fluidly, while Moore focuses on specific point-of-view characters. It makes for a fun and fast-paced read. Yes, Moore's prose does get a bit clumsy at times, but overall, the book went down very well. In addition to changing some of the character arcs, Moore's adaptation changes Civil War both in time and space. The story is now taking place specifically in 2012, not 2007. 
There are already dated references to Obamacare and the Occupy Wall Street movement, giving this book a very important sense of time. It's a move that makes sense in some regards. I guess most people who read a superhero novel probably wouldn't be open to it being a period piece set in the mid-aughts. But that said, I think the importance and the impact of Civil War of the Comics came specifically because of when they were released. They were a direct commentary on things going on politically in the United States in a way not often seen in American comics, in a way that evoked to me memories of British comics in the 80s, such as Alan Moore's V for Vendetta and Watchmen. The Civil War comics used the comic book medium to deconstruct a broken, partisan political system. Those in favor of the Registration Act could be seen as conservatives, Republican, in favor of the Patriot Act, fully supporting President Bush. Those who rebelled could be seen as the liberals who decried infringements on personal liberties. There were direct analogs between superhero ideologies and real-life scenarios, but they only make sense in the mid-aughts, around the time of Bush's re-election, mainly. And in fact, I read the winner of the Civil War as having been decided by the winner of the 2004 presidential election. Had John Kerry won, I wonder if Captain America's side would have been victorious in Miller's tale. But Americans have notoriously short memories. Despite President Obama extending the Patriot Act into law until 2015, Americans have moved on to other political issues, mostly, it seems, involving the economy. Hell, even the Occupy Wall Street movement feels like it was a lifetime ago, and I was actually stuck in Times Square during one of their major rallies. So to take a story that is so much about a specific time in American culture and adapt it to 2012 under a Democratic president, it instantly loses a lot of importance and weight. The allegories no longer make sense when partisanship is more over gay marriage and budgetary concerns instead of wars. In the end, only those with absolutely no knowledge of the American political environment in the 2000s could see Civil War merely as a story where superheroes punch each other. And those with a memory of the USA immediately post 9-11 are going to get the allegories instantly. It seems to me somewhat foolish to move this story out of the aughts and into the 2010s, and it only appeals to the basest of instincts. Yet, those with a good memory can ignore the clumsy Obama and Occupy references and mentally equate this story to the time when it was originally told. The time when it really mattered. To go from the real-world implications of moving this story from 2006 to 2012, there is one other major change, but this time the change is in the Marvel Universe. In 2006, Peter Parker, also known as Spider-Man, was married to supermodel Mary Jane. But by 2012, that marriage was completely undone, and not through death or divorce, but through an actual deal with the devil that erased their marriage from all of Marvel comic continuity in an event called One More Day. Stuart Moore chose to set this novel in that One More Day continuity. As such, Spider-Man is single. Mary Jane does play into the novel, but in a very minor way compared to her comic book presence. It's a change that both helps and hurts this novel. On the one hand, I was curious to see how events would have played out in this new continuity where Peter was never married. On the other hand, without a wife to lose, Peter seemed to really have no stakes. His actions carried no risks. I'm glad Moore did this. It's one of the biggest changes from the comics, and it kept me hooked. But I think the end result is a story that carries a little bit less dramatic weight than the counterpart. The other thing Moore does is move the location of the story. Yeah, it's still in the U.S., still primarily in New York City, but it's in a different universe than the comic books. Marvel Comics all exist in one continuity known as the 616 universe, but there are others. 
The Ultimate comics take place in the Ultimate Universe. All the what-if stories are their own universe. And for this book, Moore has created his own universe. A universe in which he told me in an interview that these Marvel prose novels are going to live. And in this new universe, all the comic book characters seem to exist. There are about a hundred named characters in Civil War. Most referenced in passing, but Goldbug, Storm, Venom, Wonder Man, Lady Deathstrike. There are dozens upon dozens more Marvel characters name-dropped in Civil War the novel. It really tries to give the feeling of taking place in an expansive universe just like the comics. But also referenced are specific events from the Marvel comic movies. Tony Stark at one point thinks back specifically to the press conference held at the end of the first Iron Man film. The reporter Christine Everhart from the two Iron Man films has a cameo in this book. It's clearly a Marvel universe meant to appeal to fans of the Marvel Comics movies. To wit, the characters who are left to star in this book are all those who've had feature films in the past few years. Captain America and Iron Man are the two stars, both in the Avengers series of films, and Spider-Man, who had four blockbuster films, is a major character as well. Not every character has been in a beloved film. The Punisher and the Fantastic Four play major roles despite, shall we say, uneven cinematic portrayals. But this book is clearly one intended with the literate Marvel movie fans in mind. But I get mixed messages from Moore's Civil War book. Yes, on the one hand, he seems to be making it accessible for Marvel movie fans. But yet the book also has, as I mentioned, about a hundred superheroes named. With a fairly deep Marvel background... I was able to keep up with most of the names, but I imagine the average Joe who's only seen the movies might start to wonder why the Greek demigod Hercules is fighting with the Avengers, or who Stingray, Valkyrie, and Photon are. And they'll probably really be confused when they find out Wonder Man is not, in fact, the husband of Wonder Woman. Indeed, with these inclusions, I'm starting to think the target audience for Moore's Civil War isn't really the Marvel movie fans. I think they'd enjoy this book, but yeah... I think many are going to be lost with all of this name-dropping. And the audience isn't Marvel Comics readers. I think Marvel always has had a problem making their prose work appeal to the larger comic audience, hence why they change strategies and publishers so often. In fact, I think the true audience for this book is, well, me, the lapsed Marvel comic reader. Reading this book, I was able to get what Civil War was in a much less dawning format than the 120 comics that tie into the arc. And all the name-dropping actually just provided happy memories of characters I'd enjoyed reading in the past. I know Marvel's editors and writers have talked in interviews about trying to get the lapsed comic book reader back into comics through e-comics and other initiatives. Comic readership is down, and they keep looking at ways to bring back former readers. Whether they should focus on people who've moved on or focus on building a new audience is a larger conversation for a different time. But I really think that that's a very niche audience that Marvel is trying to target with this Civil War prose novel. And for that audience, I highly recommend this book. It's a reasonable time investment for the biggest Marvel comic storyline in recent history and a way to revisit the characters you've loved in a way that feels familiar as you've probably been keeping up with the movies. For those who've never read Marvel comics but like the movies, I can also recommend the book. I think you may be a bit lost on who some of the minor characters are, but in the end it doesn't really matter, and Moore does a good job with the unenviable task of running down all the major characters and their powers to bring up to speed even the readers who've never heard of Mr. Fantastic or the Punisher. Finally, for those who have read the Civil War comic, for you, I give it a weaker recommendation. 
You do already know the basic core story, and while I do appreciate the little additions more made, they aren't drastic enough to justify the purchase and the time. I'm not sure if the biggest change, making Spider-Man single post one more day, is enough of a curiosity to read an entire novel. Indeed, it's a very minor point in this novel. But, if you felt an urge to reread Civil War, then I do recommend this as an alternate take or a way to refresh yourself while also experiencing something new. Or, I can recommend the audiobook, which is a full cast radio drama with sound effects and original score and great audio production. It's perhaps the closest thing we'll ever get to a Civil War movie or motion comic, and at just over six hours, it's a good listen. But no matter who you are, I think Marvel's first entry in their new prose novel initiative was a success. It started on the right foot, and I was very excited for their next book, Astonishing X-Men Gifted, written by one of my favorite authors, Peter David, author of several Star Trek tie-in novels, as well as an incredible run of Marvel's Hulk series and the current writer of their X-Factor comic. That will be my next Marvel prose novel review here on Books and Nachos, coming in a couple weeks. I will be back before then discussing If Chins Could Kill, Bruce Campbell's autobiography tying into Now Playing's Evil Dead podcast retrospective series. That starts next Friday, and you can get details about it at nowplayingpodcast.com. And in the meantime, if you enjoy Marvel Comics, head over to MarveliciousToys.com. It's Venganza Media's Marvel Collecting Podcast, which I co-host, and there you can find my reviews of several Marvel movie adaptation prose novels, including Howard the Duck and many other movie novelizations by Peter David. Plus, you can hear my interview with Stuart Moore. So I'll talk to you next week, and until then, support your local bookstore or comic book store. Thank you for listening to Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes, and you can catch back episodes at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2013, all rights reserved.